again to another episode of Mr. Hankins Opus Podcast. I am James Hankins, a.k.a. Mr. Hankins, a.k.a. Jimmy Appleseed on Twitter, and I am here with Amy. Amy is here with me today on this rainy, rainy Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday morning. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. You're doing good? Very well, yeah. What's happening? What's positive <laughs> in your life? What, what makes you feel good today? Amy, first and foremost, Nine times out of ten when I see you, you're smiling, you feel good, you seem like you're in a good mood or whatnot. I haven't seen you in the down parts or whatever. We we might get to some some negative stuff later. But right now you're you're good. What is positive in your life? Um, so I think positive is I'm looking forward to tonight because it's Super Bowl, so of course I get to hang out with friends here that are amazing people. That's one positive thing. Another positive thing is just I don't know, I had a conversation with my folks earlier and so that made me feel good because I don't know, checking in with parents and after a while is, I don't know. I miss them. So, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was nice to talk to them. Did you get to see them over a break when we took, we had spring or I did. winter break? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're doing well. They're they're older parents, right? Yeah. So they have like, you know, health health stuff. So it was good to like be there with them. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I did get to see them. I know exactly how you feel. My, uh, my parents aren't getting any younger either. They're older as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to be able to spend time with your folks, uh, especially when something so good is going on in your life right now. So that that's yeah. that's fantastic to hear. That's fantastic to hear. Now, talking about spending time with your folks, tell me a little bit about how you got here. What what, what were you doing before? Yeah. What was your life growing up, et cetera, before you got to HGSE? Sure. Okay, so I grew up in Southern California, specifically Orange County. Um, I went to... Uh, suburban high school uh, and it was predominantly white, predominantly Asian. Um, I didn't have the greatest experience so I identify as Mexican and Nicaraguan and it's a very conservative, Orange County in general is very conservative Mm -hmm. Republican. Um, That specific suburb I was in was very conservative (laughs) Republican and so uh, I had, I remember having a high school teacher, we had to write down our goals um, and like, I told him, like, I want to be a lawyer. And he was like, are you sure about that? Like, maybe you should try to aim to lose weight first before, whoa, like, whoa, trying to... Really? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was a very impressionable. So I was like, yeah, you're right. I could lose weight. So never mind. And I'll, like, think about it later. Um, he was the same teacher that would make jokes about Mexicans being uh, being dirty because our skin's a color of poo, apparently, to him. So he, it was just sort of a normalized culture of being anti-Mexican. Who is this person and what is his address? <laughs> uh, where, where, where can we find him? Yeah, <laughs> he, he turned out to be interesting after I graduated. But what I felt like was I was pushed out almost, so I ran away. <laughs> when I was 16, I was living in a car. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, like, just because I was convinced, like, I had to get out of this environment. Mm-hmm. I was really... I was not in a good place being there. And my parents, they immigrated. My dad left the uprising of the Civil War in Nicaragua. My mm-hmm. mom left her cattle ranch in Mexico. So whatever place they came from was so much better or so much worse than the situation in America. So um, 
I don't think they like were understanding and like what sort of discrimination was happening in the U.S. schools because they didn't go to school out here. Mm -hmm. And so I was determined to make it on my own. So I like left and I was living in a car. Um, this is, I don't know how personal we're going to get, but, uh, you know, one of, one of my friends that I knew, he, uh, he took too many drugs and he tried to kill one of my, my buddies and then, um, he like permanently like damaged his brain. So mm. he was never like, he never came back anymore. He was never the same person anymore. So it was like at that moment when I was like, okay, I don't, I need to, you know, go back to school. Cause I think I made it a choice to go back and get an education because education would be like my path for liberation. Yeah. And so when I graduated high school, I went to community college and that was amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I loved community college because I had representation and faculty and the counselors were really supportive. It was a Hispanic serving institution. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think representation matters a lot because uh, in my high school, you know, the only people that I saw that were Mexican or uh, Nicaraguan were, you know, the kitchen workers and there's, there were janitors and there's like dignity in that work, but I just never thought I could amount to anything more than that, and which is, it's just dignity, it's fine. But I think seeing Latinas in like administrative positions was really empowering. And so I thrived at um, Fullerton College. I went to UCLA and I got involved with the McNair Scholars Program I was getting paid to do research there. Mm. Um, and then after graduating UCLA, I had an opportunity to work with a consulting firm that, and we work specifically with the Los Angeles City Council. And we were helping uh, LA City Council President Herb Wesson with his Embrace LA project initiative, which was, it had a, um, it was meant to improve the racial relations within Los Angeles. And so I was on a project management team as an event planning coordinator. And so I was, marketing for them um, before coming into Harvard. And now at Harvard, I have two jobs and working as a marketing intern for the professional education de department, and that's great. And then, but my favorite job is, um, I'm also interning with Dr. Dominic Rollins, who is like the diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. officer. And that work is really, I'm really passionate about creating a more inclusive climate on campus. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's rewind for a second. Uh, now we got to your, your point at Harvard. I want you to talk a little bit about, there's a lot of stigmas about what a community college is and, and what, what it says about somebody, yeah. et cetera. I want you to dispel some of those stigmas. Talk a little bit about how a community college experience is valuable, can be valuable to a lot of students, especially students of color, students who are coming from um, troubling experiences and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I think the stigma is very real. I think uh, being a transfer student was very stigmatized even at the UCLA when I came in as an undergrad. I wholeheartedly believe community, community colleges is the heart of America because they allow so much more opportunity for those that otherwise are don't have the opportunity. So I think a lot of students that go there are intelligent, intelligent, capable students, I think it's just our systems of you, United States in general with the discrimination, with the lack of resources, our K through 12 schools have like failed them at some point. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just that they're, I don't think it's a student, I really think it's a systemic level. Um, I think also community colleges, they also get a bad rep because there's, they serve so many diverse students mm -hmm. that perhaps at, like 
uh, statistics show that community colleges don't have a great graduation rate, but that's kind of, it's flawed because so many people can just take one class at community college if they want to learn statistics or if they want to gain a skill. You know, we have, you know, 40-year-old mothers that come and, and they learn how to do type, how to type mm -hmm. or like learn computer skills. So, and so when they don't get a degree or a credential, that goes to the statistics for the community college saying, oh, they didn't graduate. Right. So it's just kind of like, and it serves so many different, um, so many different types of students. And yeah, I think I really loved it. I am taking a class right now at community colleges. Yeah. And um, it's amazing. So right now I'm consulting with community college of Rhode Island and we're trying to implement more uh, a diversity, equity, and inclusion framework on their hiring processes because they have a 60% student body of color, mm -hmm. but their faculty is predominantly white. And mm -hmm. so they understand representation matters. And so, yeah. But community colleges are great. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, it, there's, there's nothing like it, It's funny because I, I think people, people are so focused on this university, 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 and the idea of when you graduate from high school, they think like, oh, you have to go to a community, you have to go to a university. You know, we're trying not to get people to go, like, do what's best for you in the time frame that you need to do to get to where you want to be. Yeah. And so you were able to transfer from the community college and go to UCLA. Mm -hmm. What did you study while you were at UCLA? And what was your experience at one of the, the most prominent universities in the country? It's definitely very prominent in the California area. Yeah, UCLA, it was my dream school. Um, I studied psychology. Uh, I It was a very predominantly white an Asian field yeah, yeah. <laughs> psychology. Um, it was all right. It didn't have much of a social justice aspect, but then when I minored in education, that's when more of the social justice realm came into perspective and that everything made more sense with it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I guess the psychology, oh God, it was, it was intense in the fact that, it was intense for me at least. Um, it was a very competitive cutthroat um, environment it was particularly for the science classes and I just, I don't like how they do, how they have that curve and it's like a strict curve where it's mm -hmm. like only certain number of students can get A's and so it just, it just fosters a more hostile competitive environment for students and so I, it wasn't the greatest experience majoring in psychology. I kind of wish I majored in sociology or something, yeah. but um, I think I majored in psychology because I just wanted to help counsel people. Like I wanted people to feel good and I don't know. So I just wanted to try that route. But getting into education, I was like, oh, this is my passion. This is where I belong. This is what I want to do work in. Um, yeah. I mean, but I mean, I <laughs> education is, is, is something that you minored in. And to go from that to think about higher ed being the, the interest in the field that you are really passionate. Obviously, you're doing work right now that you're passionate about that's directly influenced by your higher ed experience and what you think is important in higher ed. So what from your experience after you left UCLA you think led directly to you to apply here? Like what what was the like the, the moment where you were like, I'm gonna apply to Harvard's Graduate School of Education? Yeah. Um gosh, you know what? I was really lucky in the sense that I got into a really good program, the McNair Scholars program and I had a lot of good mentors. Um there's two professors that would mentor me throughout and graduate students as well. So when I was filling out applications, it was all for doctoral studies. And so uh, 
the the focus of the program too was to go straight into a PhD program. Mm -hmm. um, so when I applied everywhere, it was mostly for PhDs, and I got into the PhD for University of Chicago, UCLA, uh, University of Washington, Seattle, and University of California, San Diego, mm -hmm. and they were all fully funded. And then, but, and then I got into master's programs at Columbia. Uh, University of Michigan and here but I guess so I was trying to decide between the PhD programs and then this particular master's program and mm -hmm. what really attracted me to this particular master's program was that I could gain professional development skills and I could work in the field with the students and faculty and administration and I felt I liked that more because Doing research was intense as at UCLA and I was I was really I don't know, I just I didn't have a really good work life balance. I was literally sleeping like three to five hours every night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. like it just was not and I told myself like I don't know if I can really do another five to six years of this type of work. And so I I didn't I decided maybe I wasn't ready for a PhD just yet. And not just that, but also for each particular school there was just something off about it mm. um, University of Chicago I just um, yeah there's just each school has something that I just did not find uh, conducive to my well-being yeah. but Harvard I felt like this was this was the right fit this was a good program I was going to be able to hopefully get a job right after <laughs> so that's the goal knock on wood <laughs> we'll see them um, if y'all don't know, folks, this is uh, February 4th, 2018. Right now, all of us in this one-year master's program are on the job hunt, <laughs> trying to find something that we're going to do afterwards so we can pay these loans back and figure out <laughs> yeah. what we're going to do with the rest of our lives. So that's yeah. what she's talking about. <laughs> yeah. It was so funny, too. Or not funny, but, you know, my parents were like, why are you choosing, you know, a master's program where you're going to have to take out debt when, you know, you're gonna get a stipend at these PhD programs, but it's like, but honestly, I am a firm believer in well-being and like you need to you need to prioritize yourself and mm -hmm. your self-care. And I knew that I probably was gonna be miserable and depressed and anxious if I chose a PhD program. So I needed, I needed to do something that was gonna be beneficial for me in the long term. And I think. Um, I don't know. So I just tell people, follow your heart. Because I think it's it's good to go, it's good to challenge the status quo. As we were saying earlier, like, you know, students do feel pressure to enter into university right away, but that might not be the right, the best option for a lot of students. Mm -hmm. And so I want everybody to feel it's okay to take your time and it's okay to self-prioritize um, your well-being over getting an education. Because mm -hmm. I think the older I get too, it's like, your health really matters, and I feel like, you know, you're, I'm realizing more that I'm more fragile and my health and well-being is more fragile and I need to take care of myself mm -hmm. before I can proceed, and, yeah. and so. Yeah, yeah, and you're saying this to somebody who's an old man now, me, <laughs> I think about my health all the time, look at the grays in my head and realize, <laughs> not getting any younger, Amy, <laughs> not getting any younger. So you're, you're here now, you're here now, you talked about your two job experiences while you're here. What else have you had here? What experiences have you had here that have kind of pushed you forward and made you feel positive about your experience? What are some things that might have challenged you too yeah. while you've been here? It's been incredibly challenging because 
I just, in a good way, because I am actually, I'm doing work that is so difficult, like especially with the diversity, equity, inclusion work. I'm taking a couple classes where I'm sort of acting as a consultant for schools in the area, and we're working on having difficult conversations mm. centering on, you know, white privilege, white supremacy, and discrimination. And so those conversations can be very uncomfortable and challenging, but they're just so crucial and essential to the well-being of the students. And that's what we center on, that common goal of student outcomes. And so when we engage in these difficult conversations, it's helped me grow a bit. And it's understanding, I have a better sense of understanding of how I'm acknowledging my, my privileges, I'm acknowledging you know, my, my disadvantages, and I'm also acknowledging how I can be both oppressed and an oppressor. Mm -hmm. And so it's just very like a complex dynamic and I'm just, I feel grateful that I'm learning and growing and, I, and I'm learning every day. And I appreciate when um, just being around folks and having these conversations with students like you mm. and like with people like Sabrina, like other folks in, within the cohort that are just so well informed on these topics that are really, I don't know, it's impactful. Um, the curriculum here, I guess like my experience as a student, um, it's just a lot of readings. <laughs> it's a lot of readings. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember taking this history of higher education class. Literally, we would read books <laughs> for like every week. We had to read a freaking book. Yeah. And like, it sucks too because sometimes we wouldn't even talk about the nitty gritty details of the book. Yeah. So it's like, okay. Well, well why do we, we don't, read this? Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have any time to talk about right. the books. <laughs> it's like, okay. But. No, but I think it's 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 a great experience, and I'm really grateful every minute being here. It just sucks that it's only a one-year program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish it was longer, but financially, I think it's it's better that it's this short. But yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot about running into people. Part of the reason this even exists is I'm doing this show. Uh, whether ten people listen to it or a hundred thousand people listen to it, is the t just the experiences you get to talk to two people and understanding like their perspective on things and the knowledge base that they have on things that I don't have yeah. is really, really cool. Yeah. I think like your your experience with higher ed and your your passion for it is very different from my knowledge base on higher ed. I don't have as, I'm not as informed. I was K through 12, I was, you know, nine through 12 teacher yeah. and that was where my focus was. And I have opinions on college because I went to college, but you know, I'm not there yet. And so I, that's what I find has been really awesome about being around so many people who have a passion for education, but it's in different different spectrums. So it's yeah, really cool. I That's agree. really cool. How's living it? You live in Cronkite, yeah, which is the graduate dorm. <laughs> uh, how is it living in Cronkite? Like living in a dorm oh, again? Like living in yeah. like with like the graduate dorm? Like how how do you how do you like that experience? I oh, I okay. So I'm grateful. I'm very grateful <laughs> for living under graduate housing. Uh oh. Um, I unfortunately it's just not. <laughs> Our room is so tiny. <laughs> so tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, having to see everybody. I'm. I can be very antisocial. <laughs> Sometimes I just like need to be. Yeah. Like, not always around people all the time. Yeah. And you can never escape that at Cronkite. But I love everybody. Everybody's so cool. <laughs> everybody's really amazing in, in Cronkite. Um, we have to share bathrooms though, and sometimes like. You know, when you're showering and somebody else is, you know, on the toilet, like, it's kind of awkward. <laughs> but, 
Yeah. Uh, no, it's not bad. I'm very grateful to live there, and I think it's just really it's when I upon it moving in though it was very financially stressful, and I was mm. I was thinking you know what I can't do this I gotta find another I broke down and I was like I need to find a different place to live at but um, I don't know I was just I had to be very strategic and like figure out I I subleased or sublet during the summer when mm-hmm. I wasn't here and so I don't know I was able to make things neat but yeah so i'm grateful for that experience yeah for those of y'all who don't know cronkite is the graduate dorm one of the graduate dorms um on campus available to students in this program as well as any other programs that exist uh it's definitely a a throwback to to undergraduate days yeah. uh there's times where amy talked about the times you know of like going to the bathroom and stuff like that where I'm glad I'm not there. But I do love the social aspect of it. But I, And I love the idea that you can always, if you want to be around people, you can always be around people. Yeah. Um, and I'm with you too in the sense that I need my own privacy and time to myself. Mm-hmm. So that's very difficult as well because you get stuck in your little room and it's like yeah. you're in this little cell. Like it's it's not the same as like, you know, going back to your apartment and just yeah. being able to chill on the couch, you know. Yeah. So I hear you there. I miss that so much. I used to live um, in a condo back in LA. Mm-hmm. It was so nice. And I miss, because you could, and, and I'm grateful for the meal plan, but, you know, sometimes I miss cooking for yeah. myself. I miss cooking, like, my own meals, and I miss being able to control, like, what I have for dinner, breakfast, lunch, you know what <laughs> right. I mean? So. <laughs> right. Instead of having to log in and look at the menu and say, yeah. oh, okay, <laughs> well, I guess I'm having calamari today. <laughs> Because that's what they told me I'm having. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hear you there. So you're you're having this experience. You, you seem to really enjoy most aspects of this experience. So mm-hmm. we we talked about trying to find a job. What do you think is going to be your next move? Or what do you think you want your next move to be? That's a great question. Um, that is such a great question. I would like to move out here but then like that would be the plan but then I say that and I understand how difficult it is to find a job out here or mm-hmm. so I'm told at least specifically a job at Harvard mm-hmm. so I don't know but if hopefully I can there's a community college down down the street Bunker Hill Community College yeah. I would love to work there so I might just try to see if they have an opening there and possibly try to move out here otherwise um, I'll probably go back to LA probably seek out opportunities there um i'm not i'm really not too sure and that's what's scary i think that's what you know honestly i feel i i really appreciate this program but at the same time you know i think i'm very pessimistic in how i think that maybe we're just treated as a number we're just treated as you know a cash sign for them to harvard and then you know, I'm just looking for more support in the career services sector where I want to be able to make sure I find a job that's going to be decent paying and something that I'm interested in because I feel like this is an investment that mm-hmm. we're making, you know, we're putting in our time and money where we could have been working elsewhere, yeah. you know. <laughs> so hopefully it, it's going to pan out. But I think it's it's also my up to me and my responsibility to try to be on top of it. And so, yeah, but long story short, so I'm not too sure right now, but... I would like to eventually work as um, a chief diversity officer at mm-hmm. um, a uni- university or a community college. Um, I originally wanted to be a director or an associate director for the McNair Scholars Program mm-hmm. or, or the Posse Foundation, something 
a program that helps like low-income first-gen ethnic minority mm. students. Um, I still would like to do that, but I think, I don't know, there's just all other opportunities too that I didn't think about yeah. that I'm grateful that this program has exposed me to. Have you been okay with the transition of living in LA and the culture and the weather mm -hmm. being very different from, because you talked about possibly st staying here in some way, shape or form. How have you transitioned the culture differences from LA to Boston, Cambridge? You know what? Okay, so that's, to be quite honest, it's very white out here. <laughs> it's very, <laughs> yeah. very white. Yeah. LA was very diverse, very mm -hmm. diverse. Everybody in LA was either an immigrant or they came here from, they came to LA from somewhere else. Like, it was never, it was hard to find an LA native that was born and raised there. But, um, and I appreciated that. I felt like diverse, I thrived more so with diversity because it's just all these diverse perspectives you're hearing and it's great. Um, out here, I think um, I have enjoyed my experience being in the Cambridge bubble where I think a lot, like a lot of the people that live in Cambridge are college educated yeah. um, and for the most part liberal yeah. and progressive and so I appreciate that they are they have some sort of awareness of you know systemic racism mm -hmm. they have an awareness of discrimination they're you know they didn't vote for Trump <laughs> so, <laughs> and I appreciate that like I, I really feel somewhat of a sense of security but at the same time it's also, it can be really emotionally damaging because if you're an ally, but then you say something very problematic, then I'm mm -hmm. like, oh wait, but you're not, you don't get it really. Like, yeah. you're, <laughs> like you still don't get it. And I think it's, it's similar to the same damage where I think when women of color, when we like interact with other men of color, but men of color, love, they'll rape or they'll abuse us. And, and so it's damaging because it's like, you're supposed to be on my side, but you're hurting me. And it's, it's. I don't know. It can be very emotionally draining because it's like, oh, like we're still different and we still mm -hmm. need to work. There's still work that needs to be done. Um, but I think for the most part, I've enjoyed my interactions out here in Cambridge, at least Boston's. I haven't really been to Boston that much, but mm -hmm. I hear it's a different story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think the diversity work here in an area like not just even Cambridge or, or Boston or just the state of Massachusetts? Do you think the diversity and equity work that you could do here might be, might have a different impact because of the lack of understanding and diver of diversity in this area? You talk about how diverse LA was and how mm -hmm. you're around different types of people all the time. So at the mm -hmm. very core, there's an acceptance of people being different than you for the most part. In North Carolina or the South, the race relations between blacks and whites specifically is very plainly understood because the history of the South has has put that always on front street. We always know it's there. We're always aware of it. And to be frank, a lot of blacks and whites in the South grew up together or in the same neighborhoods or around each other very often. And so in that sense, there's a, there's a little bit less work that needs to be done as far as understanding that somebody is different from you. Do you think that this area, because of the lack of diversity, saying it's very white, because it is, mm -hmm. do you think that diversity and equity work might be possibly even more impactful in an area that thinks they have, or very liberal and progressive, and think they have a good idea of what race means, 
but don't really encounter people that look different from them on a regular basis? Yeah, that's a deep question. That's a really good question. I think that's a really good point you're bringing up. I think, um, yeah, I think it's even more challenging, right? Because it's like hard to tell somebody, it's hard to teach somebody something that they think they already know, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's interesting because, yeah, I think it's even more critical then at that point to really engage into these difficult conversations, right? So I, I, I know growing up in a predominantly white suburb, that was very damaging. And I think that's where my passion stems from, where I think it's partly, this is the work that I should, that I feel I need to be doing, not just for my well-being, but just to prevent others from damaging those minorities that mm -hmm. are here in Cambridge or in Boston area. Or, just from knowing that they are worthy individuals and not inferior based on their, you know, income or ethnic identity mm -hmm. or religion or ability. And so I think that it that does pose serious challenges when it's you're right, like when it's predominantly white but they're some they're operating maybe on a more colorblind notion. Yeah, right. Rather than mm -hmm. accepting diversity for being diverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, but I think, so it's interesting because most of them, are, most folks out here are always well-intentioned, yeah. right? But right. then that's, it's well-intentioned, but their impact can be very detrimental mm -hmm. to the students of color. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, and in no way is Cambridge perfect. Right. There's yeah. that saying that says the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and it's been very difficult, I think, for me having come from an area where liberal and conservative or whatever your ideology is, is kind of where you kind of wear it on your sleeve and there's an understanding of that to move to an area like here where it is predominantly, like you said, predominantly progressive, predominantly liberal. But sometimes you talked about allyship and having allies disappoint you where in a lot of ways I'm happy to have progressive white allies, progressive uh, liberal allies or whatever you want to say but there's a lot of problems within that own understanding of thinking I'm so progressive, I'm so liberal, that I don't really have to understand where this person is coming from or who this person is. I'm very progressive, I'm very liberal and white, but I don't live around anybody of color or I don't interact with people of color on a regular basis. So I, I think there's, there's definitely problems in every area, you know, as you pointed out um, in that sense. So speaking of these areas, speaking of Massachusetts and speaking of California, one thing that these very different states have in common besides both of them voting for Hillary Clinton in large numbers and being very democratic states is that they both have legalized marijuana. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a story recently about the legalization of marijuana and looking at the past cases of people who've been convicted of certain marijuana-related uh, uh, infractions. Mm -hmm. What is your opinion on that case or those types of ideas? How should that be handled? Um, and what would you say to somebody? How would you respond to somebody who looks at that issue or looks at marijuana in general or looks at any type of drug and says, you know, I don't want this to be something that permeates our culture that, okay. uh, <laughs> that, 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 that can get around our kids or anything oh, like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think, so, regarding that, I think that there is a stigma as well on weed and what it means.
need to smoke weed, and I think I'm I'm an advocate to, for for weed. I think mm-hmm. that weed, there's research studies that show that weed, if you smoke pot or if you do if you ingest marijuana, that um, it can reduce brain tumors. There's research out there that shows it has benefits for especially ca- cancer patients. Um, I think weed is shouldn't be demonized, mm-hmm. and then on top of that, I think. Um, when weed became legal in California, it was very unfair for the rest of the people that were in jail because mm-hmm. they had a weed conviction. And so now I'm really happy that there are currently nine states that have passed laws that are saying that if you have a conviction of weed, you could get a dispensary from the mm-hmm. record, um, which is going to be impactful because then that way they can get meaningful opportunities for work mm-hmm. instead of having to have some sort of criminal case of smoking pot. Um, I think, what's your other question? Well, I was I was curious, like, how you felt about, like, you, you talked a little bit about the idea that these people who have been convicted in the past mm-hmm. will have the opportunity to get work now or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, so in general, I think my question more so is, how do you feel like the criminal justice system has treated people who have been convicted of these types of minor violations, how do you think the the yeah. criminal justice system should change in that sense? Oh yeah. We have a lot of problems with our criminal justice system. I don't I'm I'm in no way an expert on our criminal justice system, but I just understand that it's very problematic. And then I understand that our minorities and ethnic minorities, people of um, low income backgrounds, they're more criminalized, mm-hmm. right, for these cases, whereas there is probably more cocaine done in Harvard, <laughs> but there is more arrests in Roxbury, for right. example, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's definitely problematic in the sense with systemic racism and discrimination and profiling. Um, it's upsetting, really, because it's just, it's so blatant to mm-hmm. us, right, to understand that this is an issue. But then with other folks that may be seeing it as, it as oh, no, weed is bad for you. You know, yeah. shame on you if you smoke weed. I think that's ridiculous. I think they're not as informed and maybe don't have opportunities to be as informed mm-hmm. or exposed to that sort of the benefits that we can provide to people that are suffering and mm-hmm. have um, conditions that really warrant um, marijuana. But, yeah. Yeah. You think it's changing? Do you think that the culture is changing? I think about people's reaction to LGBTQ communities being very different in 2018 than it was in 2008, different than it was in 1998. You know, I, I think that our culture is moving forward and being more open to a lot of these things. Do you think that marijuana is one of those things that is eventually going to be readily acceptable across the board? Or do you think there's still a strong push that drugs are drugs and drugs are bad it's like that's <laughs> we a good question yeah. I, to be honest uh, that's a really good question because sometimes I feel as though maybe we're progressing but then I'm like I just see it getting more extreme on both ends yeah. like I think that especially now with Trump being president I think that there's just so much more extremism mm-hmm. on the liberal side and progressive side as well as a conservative republican side mm-hmm. so I feel as though it's almost like even difficult to interact anymore with people that have different political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem. I think that, I don't know, I think, so coming in, <laughs> I used to be very extreme too, and very mm-hmm. like, oh no, like, I can't deal with you if you don't get it. But then, <laughs> but I'm learning more to understand that we're all, we're all human beings, we all bleed red. Mm-hmm. But then with that said, I think it's, 
critical to build an understanding of both sides, but also I think allyship is really important and I think that we need to still be communicating. I don't think we should be siloed into our different political beliefs. I mm -hmm. think it's really important to continue to communicate and progress together because honestly, this is, I think there are people dying, you know, because of our political beliefs. There's literally people that are dying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know, but I don't know if it's really getting better. I would hope so, but if it's not getting better, it's definitely being more implicit. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it's just under, gone undercover now. Like, oh, like, because I think the LGBTQ folks are still being discriminated against, right? right? And so many different sectors. Is, and so um, I don't, but yes, there has been progress made, but I think there's just so much more that we need to do and mm -hmm. have work in. Yeah. You talk about that and we talk about progress. I think one area of progress that we can see starting now is we see movements like the Me Too movement. Um, Time's Up has been a new new hashtag to be pushed towards that effort as well. And you talk about your passion for university settings and, and understanding how universities work. Michigan State University, as of this date, has uh, has been under fire, uh, particularly uh, coaches Mark D'Antonio, the football coach, uh, Tom Izzo, the head basketball coach, also a national championship winner, one of the paragons of virtue in that sport. They have been under fire because of their lack of action when it came to sexual assault cases involving their players. And this all stems from Larry Nasser, uh, who was a a um, a like the chief medical officer, I guess you could say, for the U.S. Uh, gymnastics team, and his repeated uh, uh, abuses of different gymnasts over the course of decades, it mm -hmm. seems, as well as his employment at Michigan State University, and and that's how all this came to a head. What are your thoughts on what universities should be doing? when it comes to sexual assault cases, what are your thoughts yeah. on Larry Nasser and and the, the, the very public trial that's been taking place where mm -hmm. a lot of his former abusees are, mm -hmm. are being able to confront him face to face? Yeah, it makes my blood boil, to be honest. I It's, it's oh gosh. So I think higher education institutions are, they can be very, they can function like a business. And so it's problematic because I think that we have like, so for example, when the sexual assault cases are coming out of professors abusing a student, but because of a professor maybe, you know, doing research and getting income for that institution, the institution, especially for minority students, it's harder for them to speak up because mm -hmm. they have a lot more at stake that they could lose compared to the professor who has tenureship, for example, and who has secured, the, they, I'm almost thinking that Institutions are sure they care about student outcomes, but they also see a student as uh, income for that institution. Yeah. So we're, our, they're tuition money. Um, and they're more disposable, right? Because there's other students that could come in and take your place. And so I think it's infuriating. And what's even more infuriating is because we live in a very patriarchal society, with Larry Nassar, for example, there have been victims that came out decades before mm -hmm. reporting him to the university um, and their cases were dismissed and they were silenced. And 
it's really sad because there was one victim in court that she confronted him saying, little girls don't stay silent forever. Mm -hmm. And that is just so heart-wrenching because he was really preying on these girls that really don't have a voice. Yeah. Like they, won't, they don't have anybody advocating for them. And it's, it's, it makes my blood boil because women continue to be ignored and dismissed, especially women of color. Um, and I appreciate uh, our cohort colleague, Sabrina, her Educated Latina campaign. Mm -hmm. I really hope she, she creates a shirt that she was saying she's going to create a shirt that says, when women of color speak, listen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so critical because, you know, women continue to be mocked. We're not taken seriously. Any sort of profession that we get into, it's either we can't have multiple identities. We're either hypersexualized or we're siloed into being, you know, a work workhorse or or just very stereotyped, right? Very into these, um, we got, yeah, so it's infuriating and I think institutions need to step up more. I think uh, administrators and the university president specifically should be having, giving a platform more to marginalized voices. Mm -hmm. I think that action should be taken from the very first moment that a student comes forth and says that this professor made me feel uncomfortable. And I think that there should be accountability more among the administrators and university president. Um, yeah, because I think too often I think it becomes more bureaucratic and about money with higher ed. And so I think that has a lot to play into um, when it comes to de dealing with these cases. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the sad, I think one of the saddest things about a case like this is the reason why it's high profile is because it involves athletes not to say that athletes don't struggle from the same types of problems and abuses anybody else does but how many people are really paying attention to a student who might have dropped out of school at their first year but complained about a sexual assault that took place to how many people are, are worried about that student who might have graduated and is just working a nine to five every day but they uh had their sexual assault case dismissed or, or fault. And and I think that it's important that we continue to have these types of cases highlight when these issues happen. But when it comes to people of color, as you say, and a lot of times they're being ignored or their cases aren't the ones that are at a high profile. We think about within the Me Too movement in and of itself with Hollywood, most of the cases involve predominantly white women who have been assaulted by men or white men who've done the assaulting as opposed to how many women of color have been through those same type of experiences but they're not the the show they're not the uh the poster child for what we want to look at when we see these movements because we ignore people of color yeah. in yeah. these cases that's so real that's so real um yeah i think it's really critical especially when we talk about equity i you know what, our voices continue to be marginalized and I think that's just problematic and it's a symptom of our systemic racism and white supremacy that, you know, dominate this country and so I think there's a lot more work to be done. But yeah. Definitely. There's a lot more work to be done. Now, to move move from, you know, this 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 talk for instance, I want you to give a recommendation to our audience. It can be a book, movie, television show, podcast, whatever you'd like to give a recommendation to our audience about please tell them something that they should check out at some point. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Well, as you think, I will give my recommendation. This is highly unorthodox. 
Usually the guest goes first and gives their recommendation, but I'll get mine as Amy thinks about what she's going to recommend to you all. I am uh, going to recommend a film um, called Goodwill Hunting. Now, the now I used to back in the day uh, when I was when I was single, younger, or whatnot. I I would text my fraternity brothers the phrase "dim apples," and what "dim apples" meant was that I got a young lady's phone number. I got that from the film Goodwill Hunting because there's a famous scene where Matt Damon's character is in an argument with this Harvard student who is trying to talk about all these authors that they love and and trying to like downplay Matt Damon and Matt Damon is is actually a janitor at the school but he comes back with his own responses and they get into an argument over this woman they're trying to impress. He goes up to the guy and goes to the window, slams the number on the window and he asks the man, do you like apples? And he's like, okay. He's like, well, I got a number. How about them apples? Now, this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote this film, won Oscars for this film for screenwriting. It starred uh, Robin Williams, who won Best Supporting Actor in that film, one of his best roles, a really heart-wrenching, heartbreaking role as a professor whose wife had recently passed away and who was trying to still find joy in what he was doing as he mentors Matt Damon uh, to become a, a student at this university, to become somebody who, who is also uh, very well regarded in that university. And there, obviously there's a lot of pushback to Matt Damon's character because he is a janitor. He does also work in construction. He's not an enrolled student, uh, but he solves this big math equation and they want to know who did it, and it's him, blah, 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 whatever. So Gus Van Sant was the director. Goodwill Hunting was a, a highly regarded movie at the time. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are two of my favorite actors, despite some of their more recent problematic comments and statements that they've made. Uh, and obviously, Robin Williams has passed away uh, since this movie uh, has come out. But I would recommend Goodwill Hunting to you all if you want to get a film about an academic setting. And it's weird to think about Harvard and MIT because from the perspective when I watched the movie to now, like, I'm here, you know, like, these are the, this is the story they were trying to tell, and I'm in that building right now, but uh, always remember, you know, if you get a number, you got them apples. Now, Amy, mm -hmm. do you have a recommendation for us? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm just going to have to make a plug for my friend Sabrina, because I really, really am in love with her campaign of Educate a Latina, so if you go on Instagram, and you look up Esla Maestra, it's spelled E-S-L-A-M-A-E-S-T-R-A. -E You'll find all these pictures and posts of, um, of a movement that's meant to spread awareness about breaking stereotypes for Latinas and other women of color. That's fantastic. I did have a conversation with Sabrina uh, on the show at some point, if this, is, if this is organized in the order that it came out in. Uh, but uh, she's very proud of her work. Her work is very is fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a cool recommendation to make. And now to close this out, there's a quote, an anecdote, something that means something to you that you can make it plain for our audience where you say the quote, you say the anecdote, and explain what it means to you and how it inspires you. Okay, yeah. Um, so I always love the quote, a, uh, a smooth sea never makes a good sail sailor. Okay. Um, so I think that that is... A key factor so I think that when we face all these obstacles and struggles we can become really depressed or think that you know what's wrong with me or we can internalize it as something being bad but really I 
I think it's important to have a different mindset and think of it as being resilient instead. And so a smooth sea never makes a good sailor means that um, basically in order to be really good at something, you're going to have to go through a lot of pain and struggle in order to understand better how to do it efficiently, perhaps. And so that's how I see it as with my with my past, like going through all these different steps mm -hmm. through community college and then through UCLA and then here. Um, I think it just takes time and I think patience is key. So, yeah. Fantastic. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And now I know you're going back to your favorite place in Cronkite. <laughs> uh, no meals on the weekends, but... <laughs> We'll watch the Super Bowl and have a good time. Thank you so yep, much. Thank you. Yeah.